Good morning, Grace Chapel. Thank you for joining us together at home. Uh, The statistics say that the average home has three Bibles in it. So I would encourage you, if you have a moment right now, grab your Bible, one of those three Bibles that's with you at your home, and open up to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. We're going to be continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, What if Jesus really meant what he said? Uh, And today we're going to be dealing with the topic of anxiety, which I would argue is a universal human predicament. We've all experienced it. We've all struggled with it. And if we haven't today or yesterday or this past week, we may in the coming week be faced with anxiety or the temptation to worry. Any palms sweating already? Chests constricting? Any, Any stomachs getting a little nauseous, any, any minds already beginning to race. We all know the effects of anxiety because we have all experienced, and, and if, if anything, 2020 has provided us ample reason to be anxious, has it not? The psychiatrist, psychiatrist John Nemaya says, this mental and bodily function find in anxiety a meeting place that is unparalleled in all other aspects of human life. And I think we all have experienced that to be true in our own lives as well. Uh, That worry and anxiety has more effect than just mental, that it can actually destroy our, our mental, spiritual, and also our bodily experience in this world. Uh, the depths of anxiety run deep. The things that can cause anxiety are as broad as, as the things of this earth. So many things that can induce anxiety. And I think we can all agree that it would be a good thing if as the children of God, if as the people of God, we worried less. We were less anxious about the things that were going on in our lives. We can all agree that would be a positive development in our lives. And so today, what if Jesus really meant what he said? What if Jesus really is the Son of God? And he really has something to speak into our anxious, war, world-weary souls. Let's read his words. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not the life more than the food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own 
trouble. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given your word to us and that your son, Jesus Christ, spoke these words specifically to the disciples, Lord, but ultimately he spoke them to all followers of Jesus Christ at all times. And so, Lord, we know right now there may be temptation in our life to be anxious about political elections, about COVID, about uh, employment, or so many other things that are happening right now in, a, in our world around us, Lord. And Lord, we pray right now that whatever the circumstances of our present personal experience, we are willing to listen and hear, uh, that we aren't ready to make excuses for why your words may not apply to us, but that our hearts are ready to receive your word with gladness and with joy. We pray that through your word, you can do your work in, your, in our lives as children of God, that we might be conformed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, it's in your name we pray these things now. Amen. Anxiety. What does Jesus have to say about anxiety? The very first thing he says is this. One word, therefore. Therefore, Jesus is tying what he's going to tell us about anxiety to what he has just said. And last week, Pete talked about Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, and he talked about our corrupt hearts, our divided hearts that, that are always seeking after earthly things, that are always pursuing earthly masters, things that, that moth and rust will destroy, things that thieves will break in and steal. Because we all worship something. And it's a reality that we struggle to let God dethrone those things. We worship earthly things by nature. We look to them for purpose. We look to them for meaning. We look for them to them to fulfill the voids in our life. And Jesus tells us you cannot serve God and money. And that's one of the struggles of our human experience is that we, a lot of times, want to attach God to the other things we worship as though we can worship God and money or God and a perfect family life or God and career advancement or God and beauty. We have these other idols that we worship and we think that we can just kind of try to balance them. But Jesus doesn't say, as long as you get the balance right, it's going to be okay. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, are you willing to take up your life, okay, or are you willing to lose it so that you can truly gain it? Will you seek me above all else? That's Jesus' concern. When we look to created things to give us meaning and purpose in our life, what happens is always the same. Eventually, our life becomes defined by the very brokenness that we are searching and seeking after. David Foster Wallace is a secular scholar, and he spoke at the commencement for Kenyon College in 2005. And these are some of his words. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. 
If you worship money, you're never going to have enough. If you worship beauty, you're never going to feel pretty enough, beautiful enough. And, and by the time age sets in, uh, David Foster Wallace says you're going to die a million deaths before they plant you in the ground. Worship your intellect, you're always going to feel stupid, like you're a fraud just on the verge of getting found out. And Jesus says this, you cannot serve God and money. You have to get your worship in order in order to get your life in order. That's the importance of therefore. Jesus is tying what he has just said in 6, 19 through 24 to what he's going to say about our lives in verses 25 through 34. And so if our worship is not in order, then inevitably the words that Jesus has to say to us today, the therefore that follows, it's going to be hard to receive. And it's going to be difficult to apply to our lives. Let's continue, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not your life more than food in the body more than clothing. The Greek word for anxiety is the word merimnao. It is rooted in the same word for care or concern, which I would say are Christian virtues. We should care about things. There are things that we should be reasonably concerned about, but the idea of merimnao, it carries this idea of being overly concerned, of being filled with angst or with anguish with fear or uncertainty about the realities, the actual or the potential realities of this life. Over-concern. And Jesus says that this over-concern is fixed upon the things of this earthly life. Now, it's important that we understand here that Jesus does not discard our troubles he does not cast them aside and ignore them as though the only thing he's addressing here is low-level worries. A lot of people like to look at this passage. They see food and drink and clothing, and they say, those are small. Those are small, minor things. But look down at verse 34. What does Jesus say? Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own how does he define it here? The things that induce anxiety, trouble. Trouble. That word trouble means evil. And it's used in the Old Testament to describe a hailstorm destroying crops. Now, if you're in a first century agrarian society, okay, and a hailstorm destroys your crops, that is not a low level circumstance. That is not a low level anxiety or worry. That's a real, life-altering problem. And so Jesus acknowledges the fact that we have trouble. He, and he says, I'm talking about all the evil things, all the destructive things, all the chaos you see, all the brokenness and pain that ex you experience in this life. He's talking about all trouble that can induce anxiety. But he still says, do not be anxious about your life. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. Jesus' assessment of our condition then, going into his discussion, is this. You have real problems. Honest, real concerns. Honest, real struggles in this life. 
but we look to impotent gods. Gods that moth and rust can destroy. Gods that thieves can break in and steal. I'm reminded in Jeremiah chapter 2, I believe it's verse 28, where Jeremiah says, Why don't you look to the many gods that you have made? Turn to them. See if they can save you in your time of trouble. But then Jeremiah says to the people, Your gods are as many as your cities. And I fear that sometimes the same could be said of us. Our gods are as many as our cities. We look to earthly created things to fill our heavenly longings. We look to earthly things to fulfill ultimate purpose and significance in this life. We look to the creation as though it can fulfill the more than of life and the more than of our bodies. And so how is Jesus going to answer this debilitating problem called anxiety? What is he going to speak into it? What is he going to say about it? How is he going to address it? Verse 26. Three times in this passage, first in 25, again in 31, and then finally in 34, he's going to say, therefore. And each of those times he says, therefore, he's going to follow it with, do not be, what? Anxious. And so here is going to shape how we see what Jesus has to say. Verse 26 through 30. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon richest king ever. Even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. This is the first thing Jesus tells us. He says, look at creation and consider God the Father. Look at, your, at creation and consider God the Father. When we look to creation, Jesus does not just want us to be in awe of the creation, though we certainly should be, but that's not enough. It's not enough to just take a drive down a country road in Michigan in the fall and be like, wow, the leaves are beautiful. They are. And we're thankful for that. And that's magnificent. It's not enough to go to the beach and wake up early and go out on the coast and watch the sunrise and take a photo and be like, oh, I'm capturing that. That's great. It's not enough to go to a mountainside and look out over the valley and be emotionally stirred. What does Jesus say? He says, look to creation and consider God the Father. Jesus is not in the business of creating an army of bird watchers and flower smellers. That's not what he is doing here. We cannot just look at creation and be like, that's cool. Have you ever noticed the frequency with which Scripture calls us to look at creation and see something specifically about God? Romans 1 Verse 20, 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Psalms 19, verse 1, one of my favorite psalms. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. His glory, his handiwork are proclaimed by his creation. Psalm chapter 8, David says these amazing words. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which, what, you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of of him? The son of man that you care for him. And Psalm chapter 8, it ends with these words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Do you notice what Jesus wants us to see as he, he draws our eyes to creation, as he looks at the birds, as he looks at the lilies, as he looks at the flowers, as he looks at the grass, which is just there for a moment, and then the next moment it is gone, he wants us to see our God. And I use that word intentionally. He wants you and me to see our God because God is a personal God. That is, he is your heavenly father. But God is also a powerful God because he's your heavenly father. He's not an earthly idol. He's not some thing that can be stolen off your shelf. or or emptied from your account. He is the heavenly Father. He is full of power. But he's also caring. He is your Father. And as many uh, bad examples of their fathers as there may be in this life, okay, God is the perfect Father. The perfect heavenly Father. Look at the contrast that Jesus specifically draws us to consider when we look at the birds and when we look at the flowers. Two times he draws our attention to a contrast between the striving of human effort and the provision of God for his creation. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither, what are the words he used? Sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Verse 28, he comes back to it. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they, what? Neither toil nor spin. Sowing, reaping, gathering, toiling, laboring, spinning. Jesus eradicates in a moment all of the confidence we have in our human capacity to solve our own problems. He's not saying we should not do anything. He's not saying, hey, go sit on the sidelines and just be lazy, become a bum. No, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 encourages us that if somebody's unwilling to work, they should not eat. Scripture is abundantly clear. He's not encouraging laziness. He he is very pro-diligence. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you do not practice, that's put into practice what he is saying, Okay, you are a fool. That's work, that's effort. But Jesus is saying this, you need to understand who the true source of your provision actually is. And when you look to creation, you can discover something about it. The birds of the air, 
They do not strive like we do, but your heavenly Father feeds them. The lilies of the field, the grass, it only lasts for a moment and then it's thrown into an oven. And not even Solomon could dress himself like this. Richest king ever could not array himself with the splendor that God can array us with. Many of us know the story of Job. Anybody heard the story of Job? If there's ever somebody in life who had reason to be anxious and to worry, Job would be the character. He, it starts out really great. Everything's going really well. He's a righteous man. And then he loses his crops and his livestock. And right along with that, he loses his servants together with him. And then a house collapses on all of his children, and he loses them. And then he loses his health. That's not a very good place to be. And then his wife says, you'd be better off if you just cursed God and died. And then for the better part of 30-plus chapters, his friends try to tell him what's wrong. They try to explain his predicament. They try to resolve his issues, but none of them can stop the bleeding. And in Job chapter 38 and 39, God shows up and speaks to Job. I would encourage you this afternoon, I can't read those entire chapters right now, we don't have enough time, but God shows up and he speaks directly to Job. He's a personal God. And what does he do when he comes and he speaks to Job? He challenges him to look at creation and to see God. Look at all of my creation. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth, he says? Do you know when, when the animal is going to crouch down and give birth? Do you know the moment of death? Have you been into the storehouses of, of the snow or the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for the day of trouble? Do you know, he says. And then an astounding comparison is made in Job 39, picking up in verse 9, he says this, Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes? Will you depend on him, that's the wild ox, because he has great strength? Do you have faith in the ox that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? Are you going to trust in an ox because he's strong? Are you going to put your faith in your own ingenuity to, to rope him, to make him your servant, that he's going to be the one that feeds you? The folly of this is exposed in Job 39, verse 19, when God says this, Do you give the horse his might? Did you give the ox his strength? Do you have any control? What is God doing? He's saying, look at creation and see your creator. See your heavenly father who knows when a raven is hungry, who provides prey for young lions. Look to your heavenly father, okay, who cause, causes the eagles to soar up and build his nest on high. Look to your heavenly father who cares for all of his creation. 
Matthew 6, 26, Jesus says this, Are you not of much more value than they? And in verse 30, Will he not much more clothe you? In Luke chapter 12, Jesus offers a, a comparable analogy when he compares uh, people to birds again. Luke 12, 6 says this, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. The hairs of your head. Fear not. You are of more value than the sparrows. Does anybody here go to the dollar store ever? Okay. We go to the dollar store. And you know, if you go around Christmas when it's like jam-packed and there's been like a million people in there, okay, the bottom shelf is always full of discarded broken items. Have you ever noticed that? Okay, I get some not nodding heads. Okay. Did you know that God has not lost track of one of them? That's how cheap sparrows were. Five for two cents. Those cheap, seemingly valueless things. He says, God has not forgotten a single one of them. And do you think he will forget you? And his response is, do you not know that he knows the number of hairs on your head? That's not a party trick. And God just pulls out at the party. Like, bet you I can guess how many hairs are on your head. 18,654. And you? Zero. That one is easy. It's not a trick. He's expressing his intimate knowledge of them. Consider these questions. How many people know you or how many people have met you? How many people know your first name? How many people know your last name? How many people know your middle name? Think for a moment, how many people know your birthday? If you're married, how many people know your anniversary? How many people know the hour, the minute, and the weight of your birth? Now, how many people know the number of hairs on your head? With each subsequent question, we have a reduction in the size of the group that knows us. And as the group becomes smaller, their knowledge of us becomes more intimate, does it not? And the ultimate reduction is that we find ourselves face-to-face with a God who knows things about us that we don't even know. A God who knows us better than we could even know ourselves. And in Matthew chapter 6, we learn this, that this God doesn't just know us, he cares for us. He's a personal God. He is a powerful God, having all of his creation in order. And he is a caring God. When we think that God is unaware of our condition, or incapable of doing anything about our condition, or is unwilling to address our circumstances, then we fail to understand who God is. Do you believe that God the Father knows you, has the power to do something, and cares to do something? And I'm going to extend it a step forward. Do you believe that he will actually provide much more? Sometimes I think that our human imaginations simply cannot grasp all of what God is. Actually, I know that our human imaginations cannot grasp all of what God is and all that God has to possibly give us. 
The nature of God is incomprehensible. His power is inexhaustible. His knowledge is unsearchable. His grace is irresistible. His mercy is unrelenting. And I will tell you this, his storehouses are full and overflowing. Do you know the riches of your heavenly Father towards you? You need not look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, we learn that we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But then we read this, but God being what? Rich in mercy because of the average love? No, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with him in Christ. And in verse 7, he goes on to say this, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We need look no further than the cross to know the immeasurable riches of kindness that God has shown us. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says this, He who did not spare his own son but he gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Just look at the birds of the air, Jesus says. Look at the flower of the fields. Martin Luther says it really well when he says, Jesus is making the birds our schoolmasters and our teachers. There's an old poem Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. May it not be so. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour of span to his life? Do you understand now the frivolous nature of anxiety? Science has proven that you can't add to your life by being anxious. Frankly, the evidence says that it will shrink your life. It will shorten your span of life. But it's not because we understand that being anxious shortens our life that we believe that we can't add to our life. It's because we understand the one who's in control of our lives. We understand the Father in heaven Notice Jesus' subtle rebuke at the end of these two comparisons. He says, O you of little faith. Sadly, I think we too sometimes struggle to have faith in the true nature of God. O you of little faith. Jesus comes back to this repeatedly in Scripture. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus says this, In the middle of the storm on the sea... Okay, there's a storm going on. Jesus is in the boat. The disciples are afraid. And what does Jesus say? Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He comes back to it again, Matthew chapter 14. Uh, Peter steps out on the water. He, He begins to walk out on the water with Jesus. And then he begins to sink. And what does Jesus say? O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Matthew chapter 16, verse 8. When the disciples cross the sea in the boat, and they're in the boat, and they realize, 
we didn't bring bread. And Jesus, knowing all things, okay, knowing even the thoughts of man, Jesus says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, raising a spiritual discussion. And then the disciples become anxious, thinking that Jesus is concerned about them not bringing bread to eat. And so they become more concerned about bread to eat. What is Jesus' response? Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? The point is not the size or the quantity of your faith. The point is the object of your faith. If the disciples knew that the one who calms the wind and the waves was in the boat, they would not be afraid. If Peter knew that the one who upholds the whole world by the power of his word was the one on the water with him, he would have no reason to doubt. If the disciples knew that the bread of life who provides and sustains all human existence was in their presence, they wouldn't worry about bread to eat. Verse 31, therefore, that is, given what we now know about our Heavenly Father, who is a personal God, who is a powerful God, and is a caring God. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, but your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus draws a comparison between Gentiles and his followers. And he's essentially drawing a comparison between unbelievers and believers. He says, unbelievers do that. Believers do this. Our ambitions are not the same. Our desires are not the same. We do not seek after the same things. And there's a very clear comparison, a wordplay that Jesus plays out here. He says the Gentiles seek after, and the word is epizeteo. It is, a, it is a perfective of seeking. He's raising the seeking to the anxious level, to the striving, to the endless searching, to the desperate hunting for something. He says Gentiles hyper-seek after things of this earth. But then when he goes to the believers, he says, but seek no epi zeteo, no perfective, just zeteo. That is a seeking without anxious striving. It is a seeking that you are free to search. A freed pursuit, you might say. You need not go further than the checkout line at your local grocery store to discover that we have not found anything more worthy of our searching than our own human bodies and lives. Every magazine sells you a tantalizing depiction of, of what life could be like on this earth or what your body could look like or what you could experience on this earth. Health magazines, food magazines, lifestyle magazines. Get this yacht. It'll be the end. It'll be the greatest thing you ever have in life. I like car magazines. But even car magazines are selling you a depiction of this life. If you had this car, it would be like this. Well, I can never afford that car. It's a million bucks. 
but it sounds great. We haven't discovered anything greater to seek after if we have not discovered our Father in heaven. Just go to Ecclesiastes. Read the whole book. He searches it all out. He seeks it all out. And what does he discover? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It's just a chasing after the wind. Meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. If we are looking to this life to fulfill us, we are no different than the pagans and the unbelievers. If we are searching after the same things as everybody else, we are no different than other people. Think about it for a moment. You fill in the blank. If only I had what? My life would be better. I wouldn't be anxious. I wouldn't be concerned. I'd be more happy. If only I had... Think about it for a moment. You can put anything in there. And we all are tempted to put something in there. But Jesus points us once again to the Father, and he says, if you only understood what the Father knows. Verse 32, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Do you understand the significance of that statement? In a world where everybody's seeking and striving and hunting and searching after all these vain things, things that moth and rust will break in or will, will, will destroy and thieves will break in and steal, things that cannot fill ultimate significance and purpose in our lives. He says, your heavenly Father actually knows what you need. Whatever is transpiring in your life right now, whatever circumstance, struggle, trial, whatever difficulty you are experiencing, whatever it, it might induce anxiety, maybe it's the coming election. Do you trust that your heavenly Father truly knows and that he is still in control? When he says in Romans chapter 8 that he works all things together for the good of those who love him, do you believe that when it's not something that would be ideal to you? When it's hard? When it's perhaps refining? Maybe it hurts a little. Or maybe when the trial seems like it's more than you can bear, do you trust God then? that your heavenly Father knows. And D.A. Carson speaks it really well when he says this, When a Christian faces the pressure of examinations, does he sound like the pagan in the next room? When he is short of money, even for essentials, does he complain with the same tone, the same words, the same attitude as those around him? And his response, away with secular thinking. The follower of Jesus will be concerned to have a distinctive lifestyle, one that is characterized by values and perspectives so unpagan that this life and conduct, his life and conduct, as it were, would be stamped all over with the words made in the kingdom of God. Those are some powerful words. Paul says it really well when he says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit yourselves again to a yoke of slavery. You were not made to be slaves to sin any longer. Do you realize that? We were not made to be slaves to anxiety. We were not made to be slaves to the things of this world. 
We've been free to walk in a new and a distinct way. The kind of way that that Paul speaks of when he says we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed but not driven to despair. We are persecuted but not forsaken. We are struck down but we are not destroyed. When we understand that God knows all, we are free to seek first his kingdom and righteousness. But you have to see him first. That's why that therefore is there. You have to understand who he is and trust who he is first. Verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is how Jesus concludes his statement. He says, live this day today, live that day tomorrow, live each day by faith. Live today, today. Let tomorrow be reserved for tomorrow. Corey Ten Boom had spent time in a Nazi concentration camp. And she says, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Those are some powerful words. Anxiety can be induced by our past troubles. It can be induced by our present circumstance. It can be induced by potential outcomes in the future. All of these things, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, can all be reasons that we would be anxious, but Jesus graciously relieves us from having to carry yesterday, today, and tomorrow all at the same time. Each day has enough trouble of its own. A lot of times I think that we assume if I only knew what was coming, if I knew more about tomorrow, I'd be better prepared to handle it, to endure it. Jen Wilkins says it really well when she says this. That assumes that tomorrow holds sunshine or that at least by knowing you would be able to endure better. But whatever tomorrow holds, we we can be certain that its contents will raise as many questions as they will answer. Is that true? Tomorrow's contents will raise as many questions as they may answer. You don't have to carry tomorrow's burden today. You don't have to carry yesterday's burden today. God enables us to walk today by faith. Lamentations chapter 3 says it really well. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Verse 23, they are what? New every morning. New every morning. Do you believe that God gives you enough mercy to walk today? That by grace, he has relieved the burden of carrying tomorrow. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The author of the the song, Amazing Grace, John Newton, he, he writes an amazing analogy to this. He says, I imagine a bundle of sticks. A large bundle that is, that is far too large for anyone to carry. And that bundle of sticks represents a year's burdens. 
And he says, God is gracious enough to untie the sticks and to hand us one stick at a time and then to walk with us as we carry it. But if we try to hold yesterday's stick again today and then try to reach forward and grab tomorrow's stick also today, then as we try to carry each and every one of these days together all at the same time, it once again becomes a burden too great for us to bear. We need to understand that God, His mercies are new every morning. And He gives us sufficient grace for today to walk by faith through whatever the trials may bring to look to Him as the Heavenly Father who cares for us, who is powerful enough to, to address our circumstance and is willing. Peter says, do not be anxious. Or he says, he says, cast all your anxieties upon Him. Upon who? The Heavenly Father. Because He cares for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity to hear what your Son, Jesus Christ, spoke into our anxious lives, Lord. Lord, we know there are so many things that could make, make us anxious this week, uh, this month, this year. But when we look to you, when we see you, when we understand the fullness of who you are, and we remember what you have done for us by sending your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we realize that we can truly cast all our anxieties on you. We realize that we can trust in you and we can put your faith in you. And so please, Lord, help us to set aside our excuses. Set aside whatever reasons we think that we don't need to listen to what you have to say and to embrace your words to search after you and to seek after you this week. It's in your name we pray. Amen.